Welcome to Money Management, a weekly look at the art and science of investing. Now, here's your host, Mike Mayo. Thank you very much for tuning in. This is Mike Mayo with the Spokane Office of the Opus 111 Group, and we're here on Money Management, as we are every Saturday at 9 Pacific, to talk with you about the markets and the economy and uh, answer any questions you have as it applies to your own situation. You heard about this company called Beyond Meat? It's uh, it's an interesting deal, uh, but here's something that kind of tells you what happens when it ha- when a stock it becomes what they call a story stock. The uh, stock came to market for the very first time on May second. Uh, as of yesterday, the shares are up eight hundred and twenty percent. Now that's an unusual move. I think we can agree in a very short period of time, or even in a long period of time. In that time, it's now the valuation of that company is higher than basically 25% of the S&P 500, including companies like Viacom and Under Armour. I mean, and <laughs> wait, this is even better. As of Friday morning, their, their market capitalization, in other words, numbers of shares times the price per share, was twice the size of Macy. Macy's. So it, it's matter of fact, it's five billion dollars more than Macy's, and you know Beyond Meat was founded in 2009. It didn't come to market till this year, but it's been around since 2009. Has 383 employees, did 88 million dollars in revenue last year. Now Macy's, I'm just picking on Macy's just because it's a good example. Now they've been around since 1858. They got 130,000 employees and did $25 billion in revenue last year, but this company, Beyond Meat, is worth more. So, do you think that's a fair valuation? Eh, perhaps not. I'm not talking about their product. That has nothing to do with anything. It's just that it's gotten momentum. It's got the traders behind it. Um, if you own it, I'd strongly recommend you take a profit. Uh, if you don't own it, I'm sure you're going to have the opportunity to buy it cheaper before too long. So, that's an editorial comment. Now, Alphabet, aka Google, came up with revenues up 19% over the same period last year. <laughs> that's not a bad year. Uh, and they beat expectations, I mean, severely. And, um, you know, there were some, oh, well, gee, they had a kind of a tough quarter last time, so therefore it's going to be bad going forward. No. They earned $14.21 for the second quarter, as opposed to what the uh, tea leaf readers said they were going to make it $11.30. So that's better, you know. And uh, the stock reflected it, obviously, in, in how it moved uh, subsequent to that. Now, this other company called Amazon, they came up with earnings this past week and reported profits of $5.22 a share. Now, the great uh, tea leaf readers had a suspect suggested they should earn five fifty seven in earnings, uh, but and so when you miss the earnings forecast by the traders, they of course severely beat up your shares for reasons best known to traders. Um, but companies' revenues beat forecast, and I think what you know what you have to figure out. First of all, the stock did fall two percent Friday. But it's still up 29%, and it's the second most valuable company behind Microsoft. 
And I think uh, something that needs to be brought into mind is uh, what Jeff Bezos has said. Even well, he said it even going back to um, when he first uh, went public in 1997. And I'm quoting, he says, we will continue to make investment decisions in light of long-term market leadership considerations rather than short-term profitability considerations or short-term Wall Street reactions, unquote. So, <laughs> I, think, I think that's very smart. I think that's very insightful. And it also shows why Amazon is where Amazon is. No, there was also an aside uh, this week uh, after they reported earnings some some government official, I forget who it was, he said, oh, they got to, you know, do something about Amazon. It's destroyed retail. Yeah, okay. Uh, you know, re- U.S. retail so destroyed that retail sales were uh, are expected to be uh, $3.8 billion this year. And Amazon share, about 5%. So if that's destruction, okay, I'll take it. And our friends in Boeing, well... They lost $5.82 in the second quarter because of the 737 MAX. Commercial aviation lost most of the money, but uh, defense and service uh, units are continuing to uh, post profits. And the, the, the challenge is, is that Dow is the most expensive stock, excuse me, Boeing is the most expensive stock in the Dow. And as a result, its movement has an outsize effect on uh, the Dow for the day. And, you know, you said... I said earlier, S&P and, and um, NASDAQ both hit new all-time highs, and the Dow's within 1%. It would be higher except for the drag from uh, uh, Boeing, quite frankly, over the last couple of weeks. And just as another aside, you know, all the work they're putting in on this 737, they're saying people be afraid to fly. I'll tell you what, take the other side. They're going to engineer this thing so tough. <laughs> I'd fly... I'd fly it in a minute. Uh, I can't imagine why you, you know, it's like the pilots say, if it's Boeing, it's going, you know, so uh, keep that in mind. This is Mike Mayo with the Spokane office of the Opus 111 Group. I thank you for listening. Uh, We've officially tied uh, for the longest expansion on record, U.S. expansion on record. Unfortunately, it's also the weakest, but nonetheless, on the bright side, this one shows no sign of quitting. Um, the last one, most recent one, 91 to 01, uh, that lasted 40 quarters. Uh, and we're on our way into 41 and, uh, sometime, well, was, I guess Wednesday next week is the end of the month. So, uh, effectively next week we'll know if we are officially the longest expansion. Now the GDP figures came out yesterday. That's gross domestic product, which is a Broad measure of goods and services produced across the economy. And it went to um, a 2.1% annual rate, which is higher than what was expected. Uh, We had, as I've already alluded to, the higher consumer spending offsetting this uh, business investment, keeping the expansion online. Now, this report, too, this uh, GDP report, it's the one time every year the uh, feds go back and revise data for a lot of years. what they in this time it resulted in uh, a downward revision to corporate profits and an upward revision to workers' incomes. So, for the first time in two years, all 50 states and DC saw an increase in real GDP in uh, the first quarter of this year. Uh, the Northeast and Mid Atlantic have underperformed. <laughs> 
What a surprise. For the last four quarters, Southwestern Rockies have uh, outpaced the rest of the country. Now, since 63, 1963, real GDP per capita has tripled. And so the details in this second quarter, stronger than the headline, that core GDP, that's real growth in personal consumption, business investment, and home building combined, all three of those, grew at 3.2% annually. And inventories grew much slower, which was a temporary drag on the GDP growth. So, U.S. economy is in excellent shape. Deregulation, lower tax rates have boosted our growth, and we continue to expect healthy growth going forward. Consumer spending, that's the biggest driver of growth, accelerated as uh, we put out money on big-ticket items like cars as well as everyday goods like food and clothing. And even in the state of Washington, according to the Journal of Business yesterday, um, the gross domestic product in Washington state was uh, at th- up 3.1%. And uh, for Idaho, it was up 2.7%, and Oregon, 31 So, again, everybody seems to be doing pretty good. Um, uh, changing gears just a little bit, new home sales up 2.4% in January through June versus the same months last year and up 4.5% from a year ago. Now, i got to add one. Oh, wait, here's another one. Uh, durable goods uh, up in June. That's uh, things that are meant to last more than three years. Uh, they've been accelerating up at a 1.5% annualized rate for the past six months, 6% over the past three. So lower unemployment and rising wages, uh, tailwinds for consumer spending. The other side is they could ultimately pressure corporate profits and put a, uh, some downside pressure on earnings. But right now, durable goods up, initial claims down, uh, people spending so fast that inventories are falling. Economy's perfectly fine. There's no slowdown or recession, certainly in the wind. Now, there is another, I got to address this, there's a another presidential candidate whose name I won't mention because it just explains how confused these people are, is displaying an amazing lack of economic sense, arguing that the economy is stumbling toward a crisis akin to what the whole world lived through just 10 years ago. Now, where are they getting this information? I haven't the least idea. But the heart of this candidate's case is that consumers are drowning in debt, much as they were 15 years ago, an issue that they tried to solve by borrowing against their homes. Okay, well, according to the Fed, Federal Reserve, the, the percentage of monthly income going for debt service, now this is across the country, is nearly as low as it has ever been, ever. And it's not rising materially. The key, of course, is to keep low interest rates lower for longer, because that helps. And the fact is that as long as rates are low, consumers can afford the borrowing they're doing easily. And they're doing less. Consumers are closing credit card accounts, not opening them. Home equity lines of credit balances are low and falling. So credit card delinquency rates were up a bit since 2015, but they're lower than any point uh, between 91 and 2013. Auto loan delinquencies are also low. Mortgage delinquencies higher than before 08, but are continuing a nine-year drop. And most of the loans that are are, are delinquent are... (laughs) Responsible for more consumer debt are student loans. So, uh, these people are confused. Don't let them confuse you, is all I can say. There is no um, real problem in terms of, excuse me, uh, 
the credit situation with individuals around the country, generally speaking. Gosh knows we all have our challenges. But quickly here, the Fed. You know, they're, <laughs> they're going to be making an announcement, and with all this economic news that's come out lately, there's a lot of talk that says, do we really need to have the rates drop? But Thursday, the market dropped. Because now, here's the traders. They uh, are worried, quote-unquote, that the Federal Reserve won't be as dovish as they expected in its monetary policy announcement next week following strong economic data and remarks from the European Central Bank, who was talking about dropping their rates. So I don't think, personally, I don't think we need to drop rates. Uh, Raymond James, financial chairman, uh, agrees uh, with that he says uh fed reserve uh the cuts aren't the right thing to do even if they if he appear to provide a short-term boost um he says it's a mechanism that pushes the stock market and disadvantages long-term and fixed income investors because it tends to work against those folks uh the fed chairman who is in the camp that says we need to have an insurance cut is likely going to make the case that economic data are all getting uh, strength, but they're looking overseas. And so I think because they've uh, kind of committed to this, they'll do a quarter point drop this week, but don't be looking for any more drops uh, into the rest of the year. We don't need it. And the challenge is, is if they do, uh, you know, make continue to keep the rates this low, it inflation will show its ugly head at some point. And we don't want to be pouring gasoline on a burning fire uh, never a good thing those of us who had the excitement of going through the um, 70s and early 80s and investing um no you don't want high inflation definitely not a good thing now after the break i'm gonna be talking about uh, well i'm going to talk about inflation and and the effect it has especially on long-term investing I will be talking to you about that uh, comment about uh, how you might be able to avoid some tax on your Social Security because <laughs> most people aren't aware that um, taxes change after you retire in the sense of uh, they have taxes on stuff that you weren't taxed on before and oops, you're not bringing in the money that you were before. So you have to manage things a little more closely. I want to give you a few comments uh, that came out this week from various uh, strategists about what they think the market is doing or going to be doing. Now, the first one, in no particular order, is from uh, the economist at Morgan Stanley. And they're saying, for now, and I'm quoting, the path to the bear case of a U.S. recession is still narrow, but not unrealistic. This is from Chief U.S. Economist Ellen Zentner. Um, trade tensions that could lead to layoffs and a pullback from consumers are at the center of the recession case. She said the current credible bear case probability is about 20%, but that could change quickly. Now, just as an aside, please understand that all these uh, pundits and strategists and firms and whatever that come out day to day with their comments about this sector or that stock or the market or what have you, they're working primarily on short-term uh, folks. In other words, the news is of most interest to sh folks with short-term uh, kinds of trading situations. Not just traders, but 
even money managers who are uh, beholden to indices and so on and so forth. Uh, for most of it, most of us, I should say, uh, it's just kind of, hmm, that's interesting. And, you know, you write it down and you nod on and just drive on. Now, um, also from Morgan Stanley, Mike Wilson, who is their chief investment officer, said that investors should wait for better times to jump into the market and that they are coming. He added, we are not looking for the bottom to fall out like last year, but I do, that's Mr. Wilson, expect a 10% correction in the next three months. Now, his year-end target for the S&P is 2750 which is not particularly positive since it is currently at 3000 and change. Um, he went on to say, we think there's still some unfinished business and it's not going to be scary, but it will be a better opportunity to buy stocks over the next three to six months, maybe 18 months. We tell people don't chase breakouts when everyone is getting excited. Now, I have no idea where they're coming up with three to six to 18 months. I guess if you give yourself enough room, something's bound to happen. But anyway, that's their thoughts. Um, as to what they'll buy when that moment comes, Mr. Wilson says... There's a lot of markets out there have not done well in the last 18 months. We're looking to buy some of those markets that have really underperformed. Banks, energy, even Europe and Japan. And uh, we're looking to buy more aggressively than the S&P. Now, Goldman Sachs, they say, investors need to prepare for a climate where the economy could snap back significantly in the second half. But along with better-than-expected growth, the market will also have to contend with heightened political risk and global policy uncertainty that could trigger some volatility. Okay, so volatility simply means the prices go up and down. That's not a thing one way or another. And um, Ben Snyder, who is a strategist at Goldman, says, with the S&P trading close to fair value, we believe investors should focus below the surface of the market for relative value opportunities and, okay, that makes sense. And First Trust, uh, with <clears throat> excuse me, Brian Westbury, the uh, chief economist there, he, using his uh, capitalized profits model, they show that stocks are very cheap. And they'd use that on uh, the S&P PE plus um, the 10-year number. And they say they don't have any reason to change from their projection that the S&P will hit 3250 So... You've got Morgan Stanley, 2750. You've got First Trust, 3250. And it's currently 3000, so it looks like we're right in between it. So, in any case, um, we're doing, if we ended this year we'd, right now, we'd uh, still be doing pretty well. So, no one, again, is looking for the world to end except for the politicians, and they're just trying to sell you something. So, don't pay any attention to those guys because God knows they don't know what they're speaking of when it comes to the economy. Speaking of inflation, not that we were, but it's something that just gets kind of shoved aside, you know, in our, in our current whatever. Uh, and especially when you're a retired person or going to be a retired person, you know, most folks don't pay any attention to inflation because it's just there. You know, it's like air. It, it's, it's been there as long as we've been around. It's been there as long as our country's been around. So it's just kind of out there, and it moves generally, with the exception of perhaps the late 70s and early 80s, it moves generally pretty slowly. So it's just kind of, 
you know, just sneaks up on you, so to say. Um, and during the working years for most retirees, uh, most everything has tripled in price. You know, and folks don't see that most times because their incomes were increase, increasing their faster rate. So it doesn't, you know, like I say, it doesn't register. Um, so, so you could afford it. However, once you're retired, that changes because there's no promotions that come with big pay raises or bonuses or any of that other kind of stuff or overtime or anything like that. So just for fun, I did a little homework and said, okay, let's look at some prices of things from 30 years ago when a lot of people were just first starting to work. And this was, um, a stamp was 25 cents, a gallon of gas, 97 cents, a new car, 15350 okay? You know, everything, <laughs> that's what it was. Now, in today's price, stamp, 55 cents, gas, 289 or whatever, and a new car, 365 the price of everything over these last period of years has almost doubled, if not tripled. And you know it's going to happen. I mean, I mean inflation uh, throughout our retirement. But again, because it doesn't happen overnight, you tend to be like, eh, you know, I'm not really aware of it. It's not something that uh, our friends in the financial press get on because it, again, is a long-term thing, not a usually news-oriented type thing. We only really care about things that can and do happen overnight, uh, unfortunately, and not about what's going to occur over the long term, despite the significant income erosion that occurs. There's two things I find kind of interesting. First, again, we do tend to ignore the inflation. And second, we worry more about volatility in the market at any one point because markets move quickly and investors, for reasons best known to themselves, often mistake any drop as a permanent loss of capital. Yet, if we look at the long term, such as over the career of today's uh, retirees, this is really an issue that historically doesn't exist. Now, l let me uh, justify uh, my commentary here. This is not just an opinion. So, going back to 1950, 1950 through 2017, look at stocks, bonds and a portfolio that's 50-50, 50% stocks, 50% bonds. And then look at one, five, 10, and 20-year rolling returns, annualized returns of each category to see what was the best possible return and the worst possible return that happened in those increments of time. Okay, so in a one-year range from 1950 to 2017, stocks ranged best 47 Worst, minus 39. Bonds, best, 43. Worst, 8. Down, minus 8. And the 50-50, 33 up and 15 down. Okay? Uh, I'll just go out to the 20-year. Well, I'll go to 10. Eliminate 5. The 10-year, stocks, uh, again, up 19 down one, minus one. Bonds up 16 and plus one. 50-50 up 16 and plus two. Now you get out to 20 years and now we see here we're talking about retirement and stuff. 
seventeen. This again from 1950 to 2017. So this is a long time. Covers all the bad stuff that happened in all those years. And stocks per, gave over a 20-year gave you an average annualized return of 17. On the best overall return, the worst overall return was plus seven. That's plus seven. Bonds 12 up and plus one was their worst. 50-50, not bad. 14 and plus five. So, you can, uh, as you can see perhaps, um, one, this is, I'm trying to mathematically make the case for investing long-term into stocks and things to provide you the inflation hedge and the growth against the inflation that you need to protect yourself because the risk is not there. Now, of course, the key is you don't get out. See, that's the catch. You don't, you don't get caught in by the emotions and the headlines. You must, well, this isn't, you know, I'm not saying that this is exactly what's going to happen for 20 years. You can't know that. But it is a way of saying that the only thing that's occurred over near the entire time is that we have had inflation and that we've had to, uh, been able to deal with it okay. Now, I understand that two of the three biggest declines in the marketplace have uh, occurred while these folks have been investing. That's been great for dollar cost averaging, you know, the 401k thing and all that. But it's still a big thing in your rearview mirror, so to speak. But if you're driving your car, if you're rolling your life uh, using the rearview mirror, you're going to crash. And uh, as we know in the military, fighting the last battle is never going to win you the war. So, you know, uh, understand what you're doing. Arrange your, your um, holdings to cover the waterfront, as it were. You're not, don't just one sector, one type investment. Uh, as you heard, saw, the, you know, the 50-50 blend did pretty good, up 14 and uh, worst case up 5 in the year over year. We've got a caller on the line. Uh, Steve is here. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Uh, how are you today? I'm well, thank you. How may I help you? I'm, uh, I apologize. I didn't hear the very first part of your broadcast today, so if you talked about Boeing stock, yes, sir. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping that's my topic. Uh, my father recently died, okay. and he had 200 shares of Boeing stock. Yep. Um, the, the family does would like to use some of the proceeds to support uh, my elderly mother, uh, so I kind of would like to sell it, but I also don't want to sell it when it's on a decline or when it's down. Any idea, uh, <laughs> if you look at your crystal ball, what we're, <laughs> what we're dealing with with Boeing stock? Well, the thing it's, uh, you know, it's the 737. I mean, that's it. There's, uh, the rest of the company is doing well, and they're getting uh, the negative pub from uh, the 737 issue. And, and no one is uh, picking up the airplanes, that is to say the airlines. So they've got these things parked. Well, Moses Lake's got a bunch of them parked out there. There's a bunch parked at uh, Boeing Field and so on. Because uh, they're still making the things. Uh, and once they get the clearance, they'll do it. And once they give the clearance, the stock will turn, I'm sure. Uh, right now, I mean, on, in a 52-week range, you're right about in the middle. In other words, in the last year, the stock has been 292. It's been 446. It's now 345. So, uh, and, and you know, you, uh, if your dad passed away, then they, they, you get the step up in basis. You familiar with that? Uh, no. Okay. Uh, they, re they, they reevaluate the level? 
Well, they get uh, have has the, your estate gone through probate and all that yet? It's in the process. Okay. Well, you probably had to submit values for whatever else your dad held in terms of stocks, bonds, mutual funds, and all that kind of stuff. And right. Right. They, they look at the, the day that he died and then six months later, and they add up the two, and whichever is the lower is the values that they use for tax purposes. Now, what also goes with that is that the whatever he paid for Boeing has no bearing on anything. It is okay. re, it's reset at a new cost basis. So um, I don't know. You'd have to check with your uh, uh, estate folks to see what value they set on it. But so at this point, it's not so much a loss because y y your cost is uh, probably pretty close to where it is right now. So they take a measurement at time of death and also at six months and do yes, they sir. average two or something? No, they don't okay. average. You get, you add right. up all the securities that you own and then whatever is the lowest total value is the one that you get to use. Uh, so, okay. uh, you know, it's you can't pick and choose. You can't say this is a high one, this is a low one. It's just the total that you uh, go with. Yeah. So, but I would, uh, uh, but yes, I understand wanting to uh, take care of your mom, absolutely, but... You know, so if it came to it, you know, sell half uh, because it's not it's not a bad company. It's just, uh, you know, being beat up for the uh, current situation. That's all. So the perception in the uh, investment community is this is not going to be uh, uh, catastrophic. Uh, not that I, nothing that I've heard, sir. Again, it's all on the manufacturing of the airplane. That's it. Everything else is going great. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, sir. Thanks for your call, Steve. Now, we got to take one more break, and then we'll be back. So give us a call when we come back, 326-9200, You're listening to Money Management. Welcome back to Money Management. I appreciate you listening. I am Mike Mail with the Spokane office of the Opus 111 Group. And if you have a question or comment, uh, something you'd like to get some help on, give us a call, 326-9200, 800-920-9244. Now, I'm going to uh, try and give you some idea about how you can legally avoid uh, some tax on your Social Security. Now, the key about Social Security benefits uh, as their taxability depends on how much income you receive from different sources during the year. Now, the formula for determining that taxability looks at your taxable income from other sources plus non-taxable interest, a.k.a. tax rebond interest, plus half of your Social Security benefits that you receive during the year. Now, they call that combined income. So if you're a single person, if your combined income is over $25,000 or $32,000 if you're married filing jointly, over that, your Social Security benefits will be partially taxable, up to 85%, as a matter of fact, if your income far exceeds the threshold. Now, you can reduce some of that taxation by keeping your combined income below the taxation threshold. Well, how do you do that without giving up income? Well, you have to convert all or some of your taxable income to non-taxable so it isn't factored into that. So most folks' retirement is made up of their traditional IRAs and their 401k, 403b, TSP, that kind of stuff. Now, the challenge with that is, is that everything that comes out of those dues is taxable to you because it's growing tax-deferred throughout the time that you own it. 
So the easiest way to convert income from those sources is to move it into a Roth account, a Roth IRA, which you can do. Street legal, no problem. Now, their Roth, says you perhaps know, are essentially the opposite of traditional IRAs. You don't get a tax write-off on the contribution, but with just a very few conditions, the money you take out of the account is going to be tax-free. And that makes them perfect for retirees looking to reduce the income tax. So if your retirement date is still, you know, 10 years or so away, then this is a great time to open a Roth IRA and start contributing to it. If you have the opportunity at your work to uh, contribute to a Roth through your 401k or 403b, do yourself a favor and start doing so. Uh, that way, uh, you can, if you split it, you can still get a tax break, but you're also giving yourself some tax-free income in the future. Workers who are fairly close to retirement or only just opening a Roth will want to maximize the contribution so they can get to be a, a higher uh, balance when they want to pull it out. Now, on the other hand, if your income is much higher now than you expect it to be after you retire, well, best bet might be to maximize your contributions to the traditional IRA or 401k because you'll give you a higher overall tax break. And after you retire, you can still swap them over into a Roth account. So what if you are retired? Okay. So a retiree, someone close to retirement, can still benefit from this. You do what's called a Roth conversion. It simply means you take money from your traditional IRA or 401k, 403b, and then put it into a Roth. Now, it's a good move if most of your retirement savings are in those kinds of taxable accounts because it's be almost impossible to duck taxes uh, in that scenario. Now, <laughs> the only catch, and it's one to be aware of, is that when you do a Roth conversion, you have to pay taxes on the amount you convert in the year you convert it. And part of that is that you need to have money from other sources, i.e. not your retirement account, to pay for those taxes. Otherwise, you're reducing the benefit of the retirement account. So, for example, you know, well, it, you know, this can be pretty expensive if you have a lot of money to move over. So, you know, maybe you do it in chunks as opposed to all at once. But uh, say it's like, for example, it's best to spread a large conversion over several years. So you minimize the tax impact. Uh, and if you spread, say, you have a $300,000 that you want to take out of your traditional IRA um, and all at once, it would add $82,070.25 to your tax bill for the year. Ouch. Or potentially even more if you have enough income from other sources to bump you up. But if you spread that conversion over 10 years, it would cost you just 7500 a year in extra taxes, assuming you're in a 25% bracket. So, there are ways to do it. It can be converted. Talk with your advisor. And oh, by the way, yes, I am one. So, if you have uh, questions, comments, give me a call at the office, 509-747-3323. Be sure and listen to Opus 111's Mike Mail every Saturday morning on 920 AM KXLY in Spokane. Stream the show on KXLY.com or subscribe to this podcast and we'll bring the latest episode to you. Security is offered through KMS Financial Services.